There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery. Code Wondery. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 854. Hey, you know, uh, we put uh, sponsorships on the show, as you hear, if you listen to the intro. I know some of you skip through it. That's fine. But just so you know, uh, it does keep the show free. It allows us to uh, pay good folks like Katie Levine, who is working hard to produce your podcast. Um, so we always just want to make sure when I started doing ads on the podcast uh, several years ago now, I always wanted to make sure that they were relevant to your interests. So it didn't just seem like we were you know, wasting your time with stuff that didn't make any sense to you. So help us continue to do that and bring... Uh, relevant advertisers to us. Uh, totally optional, but if you have a few minutes, go to podsurvey.com slash Nerdist. Take a quick anonymous survey that'll help us get to know you a little better. Uh, and then we can show advertisers exactly what it is that you want so we can bring you stuff that makes sense and keeps the podcast free. If not, no worries. Uh, and seriously, no worries if you skip through this anyway. <laughs> Plus, once you've completed the survey, you can enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey slash Nerdist. P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y dot com slash Nerdist. Thanks for your help, and uh, we hope we always do a, a good job of keeping all this stuff relevant and uh, not wasting your time. Speaking of things that are relevant to you, let's go to the Nerdist Community Corkboard. Events at Nerdist.com is the email if you have something you want to submit. I want to thank Glass Goat for sending us an amazing stained glass piece of art. It's, it's myself and Reggie Watts podcasting and it says enjoy your burrito um, they make stained glass drinking glasses wine glasses any kind of glass art leather goods much more go to glassgoat.com or just search glass goat on etsy and i will post the, the picture of that soon on instagram which i'm just at hardwick also adam beasley writes hey guys and gal i just wanted to share that after listening to chris say quit doing stuff you hate and go out and do something you love i finally listened started a website lazy guy diy I now teach people the uh, woodworking with the power of pop culture, sarcasm, and dick jokes. Well done. Neil deGrasse Tyson really nailed it in your last interview with him when he said you don't need to be an expert to teach people. Just make it fun and relatable. Uh, I mean, unless, of course, you're like a physician. Maybe then be an expert before you teach people. But, you know, with crafts and things like this, absolutely. Uh, he always wears fun shirts in his videos, and he actually launched his own shirts to a uh, company to raise money uh, for his shop and his site. How can you say no to woodworking innuendo with a unicorn saying, something magical happens when I get wood? Uh, they're on a limited run through f February 19th. Go to bonfire.com slash lazyguydiyt-shirt. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for listening, Adam, and congratulations on making your thing. By the way, I think on lazyguydiyt-shirt, there's dashes in between every piece of those. So uh, there you go. This episode is Lena Dunham. Uh, who I met at the Emmys a few years ago. It was so nice. 
and her boyfriend Jack Antonoff was on a few years back, and uh, and he was great too. Jack, actually, if you if you have some time after listening to this one, go back and listen to the Jack episode too, because it got it got real spiritual and like uh, talking about anxiety and depression and all that sort of stuff. Unless you don't want to talk about those things, hey, I'm not the branch manager of you. You can do whatever you want. Uh, so Lena is promoting the final season of Girls this Sunday at 10 p.m. on HBO and of course on HBO Go and HBO Now. Also, listen to her podcast, Women of the Hour, which is uh, available on iTunes and wherever podcasts are available. All over the vast expanse of Earth's internet. So, uh, here we go. This is the Nerdist Podcast number 854. Katie Levine, if you would be so kind, please roll the podcast thing. Now entering Nerdist.com. had green tea Kit Kats before? I actually have eaten like maybe my weight in them because I went to Japan and brought back like thousands. <laughs> That's what I did. And I feel very grateful. Would you mind if I save this for myself? For save it later? for whatever you want. Whatever you want. Would anyone like a green tea Kit Kat? Do you want Because this is my favorite. I drink like eight of these a day. Oh, those are so uh, good. They're great. And green tea is my favorite substance. And when I went to Japan, I brought back so much green tea stuff. <laughs> Was it? No, do you bring back bottles of green tea, or is there like a green tea powder that you can mix in? I brought back all this green tea powder and like a tool, like a green tea mixing. Oh yes, and like tons of this, and like they have like green tea Pepsi. Like oh this, yeah, such weird shit. They know how to do it. They know how to really do it right. Do. Should I put this right? Yeah, here? put it right there. I we, love the show. I'm really honored to be on. Oh my, thank you. You're so great. And Judd Apatow says hi. Tell him I said hello. And I've been a fan of yours for many years. Well, I appreciate that you say that because when I met you at the when I met you with the Emmys a couple of, I think I, I singled out Fandon. Hey, you didn't. It was great. Because I, you know, that, that show feels like another lifetime to me. Like, it feels like, I mean, it was in the 1900s, you know? It's like, it was, the way that I felt about that show, like, I would cry if my mom, like, my mom knew, like, we couldn't make any stops on the way home from school because it's like, if I wasn't home for singled out. Because <laughs> what time was it on? Like, four or something? It was on, there in its heyday, it was on, at, like, four times a day. It was There was, like, morning showings and afternoon, it, but it was, I think it was an evening show that they also aired at four o'clock in the afternoon. Well, four o'clock was the time I was allowed to watch it. Yeah. And I was just obsessed. <laughs> the funniest then, thing to me about that show is that people will go... I'll meet people who are in their 20s, and they'll go, I watched that show when I was nine, but my mom didn't want me to. And I think back, I'm like, was the show really that rough? But I guess at the it time, wasn't it dirty. was... It was like Jenny would like say a sassy thing. She would say a sassy thing, but we also had categories that were... Like package, you know. It's like we had a ca- we had a dong category on the yeah, game board, which, you know, in a period I of time when it. they banned baby. How that old back. were you when you were on that show? A child. I was twelve. I was twenty two. That's so crazy. Yeah. And then when you who replaced you and you left? I didn't. It, I, no, Jenny left and Carmen Electra replaced her. But you never left. I never left. The show just didn't last much longer after. Because I just don't remember that much of Carmen's reign. It was very short. They they probably were about to. You know, like three years was a good run on MTV yeah. at that time because you would do hundreds of episodes. Yeah. And Jenny 
got all these other opportunities. So she went to do a sketch comedy show and a sitcom yeah. and it kind and of – Fight fight vaccination. To fight – yeah. <laughs> you know, all the stuff you do. And she <laughs> she left. And so the, the network kind of saw that as an opportunity to bring in some – to get some yeah. more attention around the show by bringing in Carmen – yeah. But it, it lasted like a season and a half. Carmen wasn't the comedian that Jenny was. Well, Jenny had a Jenny, Jenny had a natural aptitude towards silliness. Yes. that was just ingrained. Like you can't teach someone to be no. silly. No, you can't. And she, you know, it was a really interesting thing at the time because she really broke out of the mold of what people's expectations were of like, oh, you're a playmate, so you yeah. are, you know. Totally. And she was making fart jokes and spitting at the can. I you know, thought like, she was so cool on those candies ads she did when she was on the toilet. Sitting on the can. <sighs> I so was much so, fun. Anyway, I was so into it, and it's a huge formative influence in my life, and I remember being like, I'll probably meet my husband on Singled Out. <laughs> no one ever... <laughs> That's not how I met my... No one ever got married from Singled Out. I don't think anyone ever talked again from Singled Out. <laughs> we try... We, I've met people and I go, oh, they go, oh, I was on Singled Out. I go, do you ever... They go, no, I just wanted a snowboard, you know? Yeah, like, totally. Just, well, you rule and you've done so much great stuff since and I love your nerdiness. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And congratulations to you as well. Thank you. And that you. looks so cozy and fuzzy what you're wearing right now. Do you want a ter- terrible trivia fact? It is so cozy and it's literally was like, what? I took from my grandma's house when she died because this was her like pri- and she didn't die in it but like she was wearing it like maybe like 20 minutes before uh-huh. and this was in like 1999 so this is from Gap 1999 and also has a history has a family history yeah. at the same time it cozies me out so much but that like, makes it so much nicer I'm glad you think so because some people are like way to bring your grandma's death polar fleece oh no there. listen listen my, my dad's dead I talk about I talk about it in very <laughs> casual terms all the time because well, it's just a thing that happens. It's just it's, a thing that happens in I life. I mean, it sucks. I love them, yeah. uh, but it's a thing that happens. And you got to keep the things of theirs that are meaningful to you. But you know what's nice about that is that it's not, it doesn't just have physical coziness. It has emotional coziness so too. So much emotional coziness. So I'm thrilled to be here. I know you have an out it too. And I, I know. I'm so sorry. Don't we're, be sorry. We're live I'm all sorry. week and our schedule flipped. I'm sorry because of the fact that I was a little bit late. No, don't worry about it. You actually, you, you actually ended up not being late at all. Wouldn't that be funny if we just I feel like this podcast would be a great Canadian podcast if we just apologized to each other the whole time. Literally. No, I'm sorry about the thing that you... No, it's I'm my sorry. number one. It's my number one move is just at long, day, all day long apologizing. These people can tell you. I'm a I, big apologizer. I am too. And and I wonder at what point... I often think about it. Like, is it... Because I, I feel like I'm always the first one. Go, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. You... Oh, no, you... And I wonder if that is a good thing or if it's not a good... I can't decide if it's a good thing or not. I think it depends. I think it's really good to have the skills to apologize when you're wrong. But I think that apologizing a lot when you're not wrong actually breeds, like, rage and resentment inside yourself and, like, eats away your organs, if that yeah, that, makes that, sense. Yeah, that's probably true cause, because you think it's maybe a way to avoid conflict. And what you're actually doing is apologizing, and then in your head you're like, but I'm not fucking sorry. <laughs> I mean, that's my big experience is like, I apologize when other people knock me over, that kind of thing. What really head trips me sometimes is the the idea of narcissism, because, we, you know, I, I, we use it very casually. of like, oh, you know, I'm a comedian, I'm a narcissist, you know. I mean, obviously, I'm self-focused because of what I do. Yeah. But then when you meet, like, a real clinical narcissist where someone really has zero ability to ever claim any responsibility for their actions. Yeah, or empathize or connect. Or, or, or... connect with anyone else. 
And sometimes I had trip because I, I have a therapist. And I go, what if I'm that and I don't know that? I, I would lack the skill to know that. And she was like, yeah, but you wouldn't ask that question if I go, but maybe I would. You know? I know. Donald Trump's not sitting there being like, do you think I'm a clinical narcissist? <laughs> he's like, he's like, I'm doing fine. How am I coming off? Harsh? Yeah, uh. totally. <laughs> Literally yesterday I was listening to him do that thing where he was like, he was like, all this is just a way to cover up Hillary Clinton's mis- campaign mistakes. And I was like, it must be actually so fun to live in a brain where you can literally blame everything on everybody. Like, t- I was like, I don't know. Maybe it's actually pleasurable. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think the – I don't know if you would see it as having any value. I mean, I if – like if I were, and maybe I am, but if I were a clinical narcissist, I don't. You're not. You've been really pleasant to me this entire time and asked me a bunch of questions about myself and expressed concern about my grandma's death from like <laughs> 16 years ago. You're definitely not a clinical narcissist. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that. I'm sure there's a, a variety of other uh, uh, flaws that we could cram together to make a little golf ball of, of um, emotional need. But I do feel that if you don't. If you have that gene, you would never know that there's any kind of value on. It. I don't think it's fun or not fun. I think it's just, yeah, it's just kind of the way it you is. Work, yeah, yeah. Did you when? Uh, did you? I'm sorry to go back to this, but I'm just. I'm now. I'm, you brought it up again. Please. I'm really curious about it. When your grandmother passed away, was it was it a sort of a long? Was it something that was expected, or was it something that you was it's all a of a sudden? Great question. I was incredibly close with my grandma. I was 13, about to be 14. She had been on dialysis for many years, but then had a sudden attack of uh, peritonitis like infection of her stomach lining and was dead in like two days oh so my god and it was my really my it was my first experience with like uh somebody that you have you know i'd had like family members die who you see once every six months but right. this was like sort of my person i was a kid who had no friends and i would talk on the phone with my grandma for like an hour a day right and we would also write each other letters almost every day even though she lived about an hour and a half from me like we had an incredibly involved relationship so that was actually like Whenever anyone's like, why can you never chill out? Why do you work so hard? Why do you feel like you're like, you know, I, that line from Hamilton, like, why do you write like you're running out of time? I'm like, because my grandma died. Like, literally, I can trace every ounce I have of like productivity anxiety that I remember literally thinking after my grandma died, like, well, I'm never just going to spend a whole afternoon watching TV again. Like, right. people just die. It happens. Wow. And it, to hit you, I mean, you could not be in your more formative years than like 13 to 14. Oh, my God. And also, I don't know if you feel this way, but I've – and you said your father passed away. I'm so sorry. But seeing a dad cry to me is like the saddest thing that can happen. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I I hear what you're saying. My dad was a baller. Like my – I'm going to say my dad my was dad a baller. My dad was a baller. He was a baller and let he cry. Like my dad uh, – and he was sort of a cla- – he was a classic – dude you know he just yeah. came from that era he was born in 1941 he was just like yeah. a dude but very sensitive yeah and he could watch like if he was watching an insurance commercial and a dog ran up he would start crying you know <laughs> yeah. it was like he was one of those totally you'd be in a movie with him that was I and mean, there are some sad movies but there are some movies where you know it's like you you would just hear <laughs> and I'd be like really this one you know like if there was amazing. a particularly emotional CSI he'd be like oh, oh. that's you know. amazing so. well my dad is not a crier my dad is like a very articulate about his feelings but in a very kind of stoic waspy way and so I remember not only being so upset about my grandmother but having the experience of seeing my dad cry and being like literally nothing is as I thought it was oh right I remember sitting and watching my dad cry and literally I was like he was like a science experiment to me. Like I was like, there's water coming out of my dad's eyes. Like, was that it? And it never happened again. 
I think I've seen my, my dad cried when he dropped me off at college. Oh, that's so cute. Come and sad. on, that's adorable. It was adorable. He cried, and I remember I was I was walking into my dorm, and I looked back, and he was like trying to hide it, and I was like, "This is." Whole, like it haunted me basically for the rest of my years. <laughs> my dad crying as I walked into my dorm. God, I wonder. I think about having kids sometimes, and I wonder if I will be emotional in front of them about things, or if, or like, what, where's the line between like you need to let them know that it's okay to have an emotional experience, but you also want them to know you kind of you kind of need to lie to your kids to some extent to make them feel safe. A hundred percent. I always the... say, like, when I have kids, I really want to make sure that they know that, like, they can't. Like, I think the worst thing you can do as a parent is, like, make your kids feel like they have too much power. Like, the power to hurt your feelings or the power. Like, I like right. the fact that my parents are always like, yeah, we respect you a lot. But you have no actual input over our <laughs> actions and you're not capable of hurting our feelings or truly upsetting us. Like, I feel like the most fucked up parent-child relationships I know are when a kid's been, like, given the emotional power of an adult over their parents. Oh, my God. Yeah, th- those are the kids that are on, like, the Maury Povich show yeah, yeah. where they're knocking over chairs and she's like, don't do that, Chandler. He's like, fuck you, bitch. <laughs> and the audience is like, oh. And she's like, I don't know how to stop, you know. And I'm so hurt. I I'm so hurt. I so. But I, I, I do think that uh, it's important to – because – Listen, I remember being a kid, and I remember being kind of an opportunistic little prick. Me and you, too. And you get a, you, you're testing boundaries because yeah. you're practicing life. Yeah. So you, I feel like it's important to figure out. But, you know, I have no idea how to go about doing that. Parenting is a it complex. Seems, I'm literally, like, have such a complicated relationship with just, like, parenting my dogs. The other day somebody told me, like, they were like, you need to be firmer with them because I have two, like, little girl poodles who are not, like, great with their housebreaking. Someone was like, you got to be firmer with them. And so then I saw one of my poodles, like, do what I thought was like, about to pee in the house. And I was like, Susan, no, no, Susan, no. And then I looked and she was literally just sitting. And I was like, the one time I chose to yell at you and you're not fucking doing anything. So now Susan's going to go back to the other dog and go, it's not okay to sit anymore. I don't yeah. know what happened. What? Something now changed. we just have to stand for the rest of time. I don't know what to believe in. <laughs> no, poor Susan. No, I'm such a, like, I have so much dog mom guilt. What's your other dog's name? Karen. Love it. I had a dog named Scott. It's the best. Scott is a great great dog name people people names for dogs are the fucking best. and like not even just people names like like people names that are like the name of a person you'd meet who worked in like a, like allison williams from my show calls them karen and susan in accounting like she's always like could you please pass this message to karen and susan in accounting and then our other dog who has emotional problems and has to um uh he's had some issues and has to live in a special um naughty dog home mm-hmm. his name is lammy which is not and my dad was like you should have called him Keith. You didn't set him up for success. <laughs> you gave him. That's right. You that's gave, right. Yeah. You gave him the name that he was going to rebel against. Yeah. You can't have a sweet, soft lammy. Like they're going to rage yeah. if you name them after a stuffed toy. He's going to sh- He's going to shave off the, his arm hair and tattoos and doggy nose rings. Literally, he was so like he had such a like uh, like American History X vibe. He was really a lot to handle. But you gotta you gotta love him anyway because he's your he's your pet. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I love I have I have necklaces with the images of all. Of my, I don't know how I will love a child more than I love these dogs. <laughs> my yeah. mom, my mom's super maternal with the dogs, and she she has one dog, and she'll have a dog for a long time, and then it'll pass away, and then it takes. She never gets over it. I'm not gonna do this again. I can't do this again. <laughs> and then a year will go by. Wow. 
Uh, I mean, a friend of mine had this. Fo- I ju- I'm just gonna foster it for a little, and then within a week, it's like she's got a dog, and it's she her has a dog. Life. She's pushing it in a stroller. I yep. mean, it's just you know, a hundred percent. I used to have a rabbit. I walked on a leash. Like, there's no boundaries. To <laughs> How it. do you do that? I had a rabbit in high school that I straight up like. I watched a tutorial online and like learned to harness and walk my rabbit and. I would walk it around Brooklyn Heights. It had its injections, and I would just walk. I bring it to school. Like I was like a ra- I was a weird rabbit freak. Wow, I I feel like the next thing you write should be called "Harness Your Rabbit." Harness <laughs> fiends. I don't know if "Harness Your Rabbit" is like sexual. If it's about the power to do good work, I don't know what "Harness Your Rabbit." is I'll tell about. you what it is. "Harness Your Rabbit" is about. Finding a way to bring <laughs> a, a dissonant structure to something. Yeah. Be- because a rabbit should probably not be walked on a leash. Ever. But it's something that you figured out. <laughs> how to do. You figured out how to do. What's the weirdest pet you've ever had? Um, well, I tr- I tried for a spell when I was a kid to raise hamsters. Mm-hmm. Um, that was about the probably the weirdest pet. And, and it, I was never able to... Boy, I had so many failures trying to get them. You know, they would breed, and then she would give birth, and then... She would eat the babies? She would eat... Well, yeah, the first time, the pet store guy goes, well, you got to take the male out as soon as she gives birth, or she'll kill him. Yeah. Because she's protecting. I go, okay. They're monsters. I get it. They're tiny monsters. Yeah. So we pulled them out, and uh, uh, like two days later, they were all dead, and we realized we had pulled out the female. No! But he went over and sat like he was very maternal with them. So you couldn't tell. We didn't know. And so then we put her, we were like, okay, so we put her back in. Immediately she ran over and just devoured. I mean, it was the most monstrous thing to see as a child. It's hell. It's actual hell. Never actually succeeded. My biggest fantasy is to find a dog, like is like to have a dog wander into my yard who just like happens to have puppies. Like I want so bad. There's no good reason to breed your dogs. It's we all know like there's too many dogs on the planet. But if a dog accidentally came sure, to that's my not house your fault. No. You're saving them. Do you know what a sugar glider is? Yeah yes. Sugar gliders are fucking awesome. I want one so bad and my boyfriend's like, we cannot have you need to build like an entire structure for them, but they're like these big eyed flying squirrel yes. marsup- They're the only marsupial you can legally keep as a pet. Are they legal in California? Or you don't live in California? Well, I live between New York and California. They are legal in California. They're not legal in New York. Interesting. And, I mean, it seems like a lot. You carry it in, like, a polar fleece pocket around your neck. (laughs) That's so sweet. Because they need to feel safe all the time. Like, I'm really, I also am really into fennec foxes. I was just about to say, I I dated a girl who was convinced we should get a fennec fox. And I was like, you, they're wild animals. They're wild animals. You can't, like, every video we saw of someone having a fennec fox in their house was the fucking fox running 360 degrees. Around the house and shitting on everything and, like, eating. everything. Well, there's a new craze in Brooklyn, where I live most of the time, which is, like, hipsters have been, like, raising baby squirrels that they find fallen out of the nest. Because for some reason, and I don't get the correlation, like, something having to do with, like, global warming and unseasonable warmth means that, like a lot more baby squirrels are, like, dropping out of their nests sure. at random times. Sure. I don't know the science behind it. So I know this, like, cool hipster guy who raised, who, like, raises little squirrels he finds, like, on the ground in Brooklyn. And then another friend of mine tried to do it and then figured out it was a rat. <laughs> she was like, I'm raising the cutest squirrel. And she got in touch with me and she was like, where do I drop it off? And then she took the squirrel to, like, the... I have a friend who's an animal rehabilitator and my friend Elizabeth was like bring her to this place. Um, they'll help you figure it out. And they were like, this is a straight up rat. And the minute, and they have no loyalty and it will fucking, the minute it can, like bite your hand off. Because like, 
a city rat? Yeah. Is there anything more evil than like a New York subway rat? They don't rat? have time for your bullshit, the city rats. No. They don't. They just need to breed and uh, and eat as much as possible. And sometimes that means you. I don't know how you confuse a squirrel with a rat. Well, I guess when they're babies, they look oh, a lot alike. But gotcha. then they were like, you know this has like a long rat tail. And I have to admit <laughs> the girl who found it is like kind of a stoner. Like I think she was just like, cute squirrel. <laughs> and I was like, like – the worst. I couldn't believe it. And I was somehow got very involved with like trying to find the right because she was going on vacation and she needed someone to take care of the squirrel. So I like got a wildlife rehabilitator involved. I got super emotionally invested and they were like, shit, man, it's a rat. That is a straight up rat. Yeah. Did, did she let it go at that point? What did, what they did you do? They put it down. Oh. They gave it like a lethal injection because they were like, we're, you're going to raise it and then it's going to cause destruction. So this this rehabilitator was the one that... Was like, you yeah. can't keep this thing alive. Oh, wow. So we had a story on my podcast. This girl shared a story on the Cats episode of Women of the Hour about... Um, I don't know if you ever heard the story about the woman in L.A. who put up a sign that said, like, kitten found, is this yours? Um, kind of smelly, pretty nice, with a picture of a skunk. And then, like, <laughs> put her phone number on it. And she just wanted to see what people would do. Yeah, And she's got like thousands of voicemails ranging from people really kindly informing her it was a skunk to oh, being like she got some what the fuck vitriol. is wrong with you yeah. you dumb piece of shit that's yeah. a skunk yeah. and like excuse me ma'am but I think what you may have found is a skunk and her story <laughs> is like beautiful and it came from her being really lonely in LA and being like I need to do something that like brings me together with other people and her idea and so in the in our we had an entire cats themed episode of women of the hour and her skunk story was the piece de resistance and that didn't that that didn't disenchant her in any way about how how negative and vitriolic people can she be She said it made her feel like like more than like there were gross vitriolic messages, but more were people who genuinely wanted to let her know with <laughs> kindness and love that she was raising a skunk. And like, can I help you please to get rid of the skunk right. or to save this? And she said, like, there was also just something about like knowing that people were looking at her sign and responding that like made the world made feel her feel smaller. connected. Yeah, and she said that she's like now the the flyers all over the internet, and so she'll still get calls sometimes like ten years later, and she can't bring herself to change her phone number. That's really amazing. It's kind of a beautiful yeah, story. Yeah, it's 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 uh, boy, you know, when people feel like they have some type of high ground, whether it's moral or academic or whatever, they really make no bones about just flying into it's like oh now i can unleash all the rage have you ever noticed how psyched people are when you have a typo on twitter <laughs> people fucking love to point out a typo and you're like um um excuse hate me hate to be that person no you don't yeah you love to be <laughs> you that love person. to be that person but then i've also my boyfriend pointed out which was really right that like every time he gets a negative comment on twitter they've confused like there and there like right. they've always done some horrible grammar like no one comes at him with good grammar with good grammar yeah yeah i feel like i do get that a lot or or boy this really pissed someone off uh on at midnight i Im i improperly use the phrase begs the question which does not mean raises the question and so but i said what does it mean i i don't know i'm uh, i'm dumb but i i said you know something begs a question and this guy i mean and it got to the point where he was just straight up like fuck you you know like, <laughs> i was like and so that made me kind of want to engage a, a little bit i mean like well you seem very upset about this it was you know 
It was, you know, how many productions do you have going at once yeah, that you might see, make a mistake? Such as you. Plus, I also really <laughs> thought begs the question meant raises the question. It does not mean raises the question. Uh, Katie, would you like to look it up? Yeah. I'm upset now. Begs versus raises the question. But he was very, very, very upset. And this obviously was a a, a, a thorn in his craw that has been festering over many, many, many years. It's used to mean that someone has made a conclusion based on a premise that lacks support. Right, which is not the same as raises the no. question. So I guess it means like, like I could say like Donald Trump says that we had no contact contact with Russia, which begs the question what the fuck is going on? And But then I think he would say that's wrong because you're saying that raises the... If, I, I think they're not interchangeable. I think you can't interchange begs and... And maybe that guy was wrong, but I have a feeling people are going to let us know at this point. Yeah, I so like I hope that they reach out and let us know. There's a few things like that, like, you know, like um, uh, what's the one that... Um, we always think means for a moment, but means in a moment. I don't know. What? There's a word that like everybody thinks means for a moment. It's like, uh, this drives me insane, and now I'm going to forget what it is. I'm ruining your whole podcast. No, you're not I'm ruining, ruining it. You can't life. ruin this podcast. But that's such great news, but it's like, um, <laughs> uh, not momentarily, but um, now I'm going to forget what it is, but I remember I misused it once to mean for a moment when it means in a moment. Sure. And I'm... And then that begs the question, who the fuck cares? <laughs> well, for some, for some people who are – it's just amazing to me what people will zero in on. And, and I think it's hard sometimes not to personalize things and go, wow, I feel like oh, – I'm sorry. You know, especially when you are empathetic to other people's feelings and you don't want yeah. people to be upset. Uh, but at a certain point, you have to go, well – you know, the level of rage that that person's experiencing, There's maybe there's more going on, and I should yeah. just let that person and I should just ex- let that have person their experience. Fly away. Let them have their feelings and don't try to control their feelings, and they can be mad, you know, and it's not about me. You know, 100%. I made a mistake, but... I, I had... Did you have grammar, like, grammar Nazi parents? Like, I had a very aggressive grammar dad. No, uh, no. My, my, dad's, my dad's grammar was okay, decent, uh, but he, my dad was born in Alabama and, you know, raised in, um, in the streets of San Francisco in the 19, you know, forties and fifties. So he was, you know, he was like, a, my dad was street smart. My dad was very That's street cool. smart, but he was not, uh, he was not a, a, and he was a smart guy, but he was just not a very academic guy. Well, my, my mom was academic. whatever the opposite of street smart is. <laughs> my dad literally once was like on, this makes me, once he was on the train and just like a group of teenage girls like started screaming at him and he just like couldn't even like, just like telling him how like lame he looked and he like couldn't even respond. Oh, that's such a bummer. But he's really cool. He's just not like cool like that. Right. But he would, like if I used, if I said like me and my friend. Right. I was practically you would, grounded. Yes, like yeah. there was no, <laughs> and, or even if I said like my friend and me, he'd be like, well, you were, we wouldn't say me is going to the store. You'd say I am going to this. Like, it was so beaten into right, us. Right, right. And, and still to this day, he'll correct my grammar in public in front of people. And I'm like, I'm a 30-year-old professional woman. This doesn't feel good. <laughs> well, I, I and I think obviously it probably, you know, there are much deeper implications for stuff like that. Because I think we all have things that we, you know, get obsessive over. Yeah. And they, to to the outside world, like, why would you care? And, and I think a lot of it is just... Especially now, the, the everything feels so uncontrollable yeah. that we focus in on minutia 
because we're just trying to it's like if I can't control I I can control this thing yeah so just don't violate this one rule because I need something to hold the fabric of this fucking universe together I know I know and I have obsessive compulsive disorder so I relate deeply to needing things to hold the fabric of your universe together I just try to do ones that don't force other people to like mine are all self-directed like I try not to force other people to engage my obsessive habits right and is that uh, – I, I assume when you say your boyfriend, you mean Jack? Yes. Great guy. He's great and he loves you. You know, he was so great on the podcast a couple years ago. He loves you. Such a sweet guy. And he listens to your podcast what? too. And he doesn't listen to my podcast. <laughs> but he does listen to yours. <laughs> That's, have you had this discussion before? Are you like, you don't have to listen to it? Or no, um, it's interesting. He'll, he'll be like – He'll be like, I've listened to every episode. And I'll be like, say what happened on the last episode. He'll be like, I don't have to prove myself to you. <laughs> but he wants, he makes jokes about it. Like the podcast is like about feminist issues. It's called Women of the Hour. And he will make jokes. He'll be like, today's episode of Women of the Hour, one woman uses a very specific kind of flute. Like he thinks it's like, just, he's like, what is this about? And I'm like, there's actually really interesting stories in there if you just open your ears. He'll listen if I'm like, will you listen to this edit and tell me what you think? But I have to be like there forcing him. Sure. It was funny, for a long time, he had my book in his suitcase and I'd be like, why are you carrying my book? And he's like, just makes me feel good to have it with me. And I'm like, so romantic. Then I was like, oh, because you haven't read it. <laughs> he's getting to it. You're carrying it everywhere in an attempt to read it. He's getting He's yeah. getting to it. He so, knows what's in there, but he loves your podcast. Oh, that's so sweet. He was he was really great when he came on, and and and, uh, and it was such a it, – it, it took this really great turn into, you know, just like the brain stuff that we, that we all have. And He's very – what I – one of the things I really like about him is he's very open – to talking about his own anxiety and discomfort in a way that I think is comforting to other people. A hundred percent. And a lot of like, you know, like being like a rock musician, like it's not a culture that really encourages you to like be vulnerable, maybe more than it used to. But like he does, he definitely doesn't feel the need to like play the cool dude, which right. I like. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I love talking about that stuff on, on here and I love talking about sobriety which i'm I'm sure and you know dealing with mental mental health issues because because i do feel like even though some people it listen if this irritates you you're lucky which means you're probably not suffering from it but i do feel like it's healthy it helps when people hear people talk about it in very calm terms like you talk about your grandmother i talk about my dad then i think it just demystifies some of the scariness of it how long have you been sober oh wow almost I, this is 14 years. That's amazing. That's like a real accomplishment. Congratulations. I guess. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I think it doesn't really – it doesn't It doesn't feel like an accomplishment in the sense that I don't think, hey, look what I did. I just sort of feel like, well, there are two paths and this path led to this lifestyle and I wanted this one. Yeah. And so I just – I did this one and, uh, and I'm glad I did. I never regretted I- it. Do you – are you – forgive me for not – are you like a program person or are you – No, but what's interesting is that I just – or maybe not interesting, but I just went to – I when I first got sober, I went to a couple meetings and I didn't like them. Yeah. My dad had the same thing. He was like, I'm going to do this by myself. I – you know, I, I went to meetings where it just sort of I, – I, I, I had a struggle with the God stuff and I had a struggle with – being told like, well, you need to do it this way or it's not going to work. Yeah. Which I'd since been told like, well, that was a very strict interpretation of 
you know, I went. I was told, though, you went to bad meetings. And I go, okay, but those are the ones I went to. So I had yeah. a therapist and I had some other comic friends who were a support. I had a support structure. Which is what you need. And you which need is a the basis structure. of AA is a support structure. Yes. That one didn't work for me, but I've never poo-pooed it for anyone that yeah. it works for. I feel like whatever. But I ju- a friend of mine just called me recently and said, hey, uh, I'm going to this one meeting and there's this really great speaker. Would you come? And I go, yeah, I I would love to. I'm curious to see yeah. what. And I really loved it. And what it reminded me is that the most important thing that any of us can really fall back on is community. There was a community yeah. of people there, well, and that that part was that was very nice for me. Well, I have this. I go to Al-Anon. I don't go. I was. I had a year where I was going very religiously, and then um, I found some other things that I felt were helping me with the same issues. So I stopped going as much. Um, but I have to say that even though I really loved what Alanon was talking about, I also had a lot of issues with the God and higher power stuff. It was hard for me to – because even if they say, like, God as you see him or her, it's still a term that has so much stigma around it for me for whatever sure. reason that it was just – it was tough. And that same thing of, like, you know, anything that has too many mantras or too many – sets of rules is I think when you're a you and I probably share like I think a lot of people who are creative and a lot of people who are comics have a little bit of an authority problem and sure. <laughs> it's hard to carry your authority problem into a 12-step meeting well yeah and and I think that is you know a- any of these issues whether it's and I almost kind of feel like alcoholism is a is a is a bad label in the sense that it it really is kind of an obsessive issue yeah. I think and alcoholism is a is a symptom of of that. Like that's a thing that people go to the same way that they would go to obsessive sex or obsess or workaholism yeah. or obsess or anything. And I know a lot of people whose addictions have traveled. Who's like who have oh, like, of course they've gotten sober, but like they work out like a fiend and they can't stop of sleeping course. with models or whatever it is. And- oh, I notice that stuff all the time in myself. And I and I so I recognize like okay, my brain has an obsessive quality to it. Totally. Because I need to, you know, I I like ups and downs, and it's yeah. very hard for me to stay still. But, totally. um, but but very recently, the 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 God stuff, and we talked about it a lot with Pete Holmes too when he was on the podcast. But the God stuff for me, he for he likes God stuff. He likes God stuff, and he explained it in a really lovely way that was very meaningful to him and. You know, I mean, I have no qualms with it at all. I just don't. For me, it's just I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school, yeah. so it's very hard for me to wrap my brain around that. Well, part it's interesting. Of it. One of my really close friends is the author Mary Carr, who's mm-hmm. an amazing writer, and she's written a lot about her sobriety. In she's written three memoirs: um, Liars Club, Cherry, and Lit. And they're incredible books, and they're about her experience of growing up in a dysfunctional southern home and then becoming a drug addict and then recovering. And she's also became extremely Catholic in her adulthood. But Mm -hmm. she's also part of, like, the world of the New York literati, which isn't a place where religion is – I mean, she said to me, she was, like, saying – she told me in an interview that I did with her, she was, like, saying you're Christian and, like, the New York literary world is kind of, like, probably what it feels like – to say that, like, you're a Republican and at a certain kind of party. Like, right. just, it's not a great feeling. She's like, but despite it all, she's like, I just feel like it makes me, she explained it to me really gently. She's like, whatever holds you accountable and makes you feel like a better, stronger person is where you should head. Yeah. And for me, that's, I mean, I, my house is full of crystals and I do a lot of yoga, so I don't see where the <laughs> distinction really is, but... The God stuff for me, it's hard for me to separate it from all of, like, the violence that I feel like it's perpetuated. Well, I just – I think it, it – it, 
you know, it's a a lot of it is a reflection of whatever baggage you have, you know, and for and for some of it, it for me it was just very hard to because I I love science so much and I'm also I'm always fascinated by people who can be scientists and also religious at the same time. Yeah. And and I, that's not a disparaging comment at all. I legitimately no, it's a fascinating it's, thing. it is like, oh wow, how do you you know what you can see and what you can't see and what you can prove and what you can't prove. And uh but with the AA stuff, what I came to really understand for myself was that the God stuff is really about um me always needing to be in control and just letting go of that control. Yeah. And that doesn't have to mean like, it's a guy on a cloud with a beard and yeah. he's got he's barefoot, you know, <laughs> he's walking around in the cloud. Like yeah. it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to mean that it's really just about the higher power stuff again, which dances near the, the, the God border, I think for in some people's minds, but I was like, Oh, it just means you got to let go that you can't control anything. And that's well, very hard for people like us. That's the thing. The reason I went to Al-Anon is because I'm like totally codependent and have a believe at some in some essential part of myself that I can cure the people around me who are suffering and or control our relationships. And I mean, my obsessive need to have all of my relationships be quote unquote as healthy as they could be was actually leading to like some kind of toxicity. <laughs> right. And I think what they're trying to say to you with the higher power stuff when you go to Al-Anon is like, bitch – you're not controlling shit. Right, right, Someone right. Someone else or nobody's in control, control, but it's not you. Right. And I remember like really sit – and it was comforting to just sit around with people who had realized that a long time ago. Yeah. And seemed like – and then I came home and I was like, Mom, I liked Al-Anon, but I hated everyone's shoes. <laughs> I was like – and she was like, that's not a good reason not to return. But that's where your brain focused but, yeah. on. And it is, and it's funny because my mom once stopped seeing a therapist because she didn't like his snow boots. So clearly, there's something hereditary happening sure. here with well, self help and footwear. Yes, but I also think that you know uh, something happens in our brains where we're trying to understand the world, we're trying to parse out all the information that we're getting, and now it's just so much information. It's just too much it's information. Too much information. <laughs> and and so you know, I think in order to sort information, I don't think our brains are evolved enough to sort through all this information, and yeah. so we need. Shortcuts, and we need, you know, when there's a gap between uh, re- what we perceive as reality and what our expectations are, we have to bridge that gap somehow. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, that's where shortcutting happens, or that's where, like, well, I don't like those shoes, or like, oh, I don't like that guy's fate. You know, yeah. it's just like we need reasons for things so that our information can be sorted and processed. Well, I was obsessed. Did you watch Leah Remini's Scientology show? No, but I've heard it's amazing. It's the greatest. Thing in my life like I feel as though I would not have lived through the first three months of a Trump presidency without like doing something fucking insane like I, I would have had it like an insane public breakdown moment if it weren't for Leah Remini's show and something about Leah Remini's just like there's something really moving about the fact that she's like I'm not going to go quietly into that good night she was like this took 30 years of my life that I'm not going to get back and so I'm going to do everything I can to expose and explain and understand what's happened to me. And so in that way, there's like a really beautiful like pathos and emotionality to like her journey. Sure. So it's easy to just look at it as like this is a weird reality show about Scientology. But I actually believe like it's an example of like how people take their trauma and rejigger it. Because Leah Remini's whole thing is like if I can get one person to not – 
to leave Scientology or to understand the problematic nature of what's happening here, if I can get one, if I can get one family back together, like she's sort of like Mother Teresaing it all across America with a lot of makeup on, and I respect that lady. <laughs> but I was also interested. I was like, it's an like the amount, the fact that Scientology has become a billion dollar industry is just evidence of how badly people need to have the world managed for them. Well, we everyone needs everyone needs something. I think everyone needs something and it does, you know, like whether it's you know, and and I'm very much like you know, I mean I see in the subculture that I'm in people, you know, maybe that's firefly or maybe that's yeah. maybe that's collectibles or I mean, you know, whatever it is that you need to align yourself with so that you can, you know, kind of build out a little igloo of safety, you know, so and where you feel where you feel safe and familiar. One of the reasons Jack and I connected so much when we first met is we were both, and I'm sure you were like this too, we were kids who had a lot of collections. <laughs> and we like still have our collections. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. And a lot of Jack's collections are in our house, whether it's his Star Trek, whether it's his Star Wars toys, or whether it's his like, you know, old copies of... Um, George and Spy magazine mm-hmm. or whether – I mean I had an Archie collection. I had an X Factor collection. I had a doll – Madame Alexander doll collection. And like that was how I understood the world as a kid was like if I can manage and perfect my collection. And I didn't have a lot of friends. So I would come home from school every day and like put my comics in and out of their sleeves. Good. Move my Madame Alexander dolls on their stands. <laughs> make sure that everything looked – I was really into like laying it all out as if an audience was going to come into my room to like observe my museum, yes. which it wasn't. Even now, like my hobbies are beading and like to relax myself. I, I bead and I also draw like not well. They're just things I like. I, you need to do something that's not your work. And I spend as much time organizing my beads into little compartments and organizing my Sharpies, my colored Sharpies, as I do actually doing the activities. Yeah, well, I mean, that's all, but that that's part of the experience. You know, it's all part yeah. of the experience. Or people with cosplay, it's not just putting on the costumes, it's acquiring the things to make the costumes and the experience and the and the level of detail and the my mom's an artist and she takes a lot of pictures she's really into like japanese cosplay subculture and so my mom takes a lot of pictures of these things called kigurumi masks i know kigurumi yeah so yeah so my mom has like 10 kigurumi masks they're scare the shit out of me she also has like five of those japanese very ornate japanese sex dolls the Mm -hmm. silicone sex dolls yep and all the accessories that go with them. And, <laughs> I mean, going to my mom's studio is remarkable because it's like she, she – the amount of items that it takes to create the – to ju- the amount of items that it takes to make the image work, whether it's like put – you know, the, the various latex items that go under the Kigurumi head or the three wigs she has for her sex doll, like – there's, you know, we're all we're all working it out that way. By the way, your parents sound like a late '90s Ben Stiller movie plot. I like, mean, he's all likes <laughs> reading books, and she th- throws paint on things. Like it, <laughs> they're really weird. I have to say, they live in this house in Connecticut. They they're from New York. I mean, they're they've lived in New York since the '70s, but like six years ago, they bought an old schoolhouse in Connecticut. And oh, that both, sounds awesome! It's pretty awesome. It's in the middle of town, so like they're kind of the freaks in the middle of town, <laughs> and they each have studios in the house and my dad is a painter and my mom is a photographer and a lot of her work centers around dolls and toys so like my mom's you could mistake my mom's studio for like a you could mistake my mom's studio for like a weird japanese toy store sure and you could mistake my dad's studio for like where the unabomber lives sure and they're just like doing their damn thing up there and then they just like take breaks to watch bbc and then go back to their studios wow it seems really fun uh 
do you think you'll, you know, what, man, this this might be reaching. This might be reach, reaching. Reach, So as I'm talking to you more and starting to contextualize things, I sort of think, because uh, you're 30 now, right? I am. Congratulations. Thank you 30, so much. 30. I saw it on a medical forum the other day. Like, I, it said like 30 years old. And I was like, who's 30 years old? And I was like, oh, me. Yeah, you. Me, weird. Yeah, you get used to it. I thought I freaked out before I turned 40, but no. No, you look, and you look great. Hey, come on. I told Jack the other day that he was turning, like he'd forgotten that he was turning 33. And I was like, you're turning 33. And he's like, no, no, I'm turning 32. And I was like. Oh, you're turning 33. <laughs> I forget how old I am all the time. And then I remember, and I'm like, oh, it's sort of like that moment when you wake up in the morning where you forget everything and then yep. you remember everything and you're like, oh. Oh, and you're either really age. thrilled to wake up from a dream or you're really bummed. Like, you're yeah. like, my life is so great. Or you're like, my life's not as great as that dream was. Yeah, something weird happened the night before and you'd forgotten about it. And then you wake up, oh, I still got to yeah. deal with that thing. That's what it feels like to be, to be my age. But um, uh, so... So your grandmother dies when you're 13. Mm-hmm. Ten years later, at 23, your anonymity kind of dies. Yeah. And and these are both very formative because, you know, 13, 14 is very formative as you begin to become a, an, a, a being, an adult with an identity. But I feel like there's the secondary one that happens when you're like 22 or 23 and you spend your 20s kind of solidifying whatever this, whatever is really going to be the core of this, like... Probably lifelong identity of whoever whoever you are, and so you do that, you know, publicly. You become kind of famous at twenty three, and you make this thing, and you make you know, like it's in, which is incredible that you know, Thank like you. I didn't, I, I mean, I was hosting you were a show, all singled out, and I, didn't I was obsessed write with it you. And direct it and produce it, and you had to do a lot of improv, and don't pretend you didn't. All right, all right, don't I pretend improv that's about, not an accomplishment. Dong size, although and... you may have just like really explained some stuff to me because. I kind of feel in some some ways like I'm always – I feel like the period between when I was 13 and 20 – 13 is when I was really like I want to be an artist and a creator and 23 is when I stopped getting to have that sort of magical feeling of just being alone in your house, um, working on something that you don't know if anyone will ever see and you're working on it just for like the love of the game. Right. So I spend a lot of time – thinking and remember like my my experience of being alone in my high school bedroom will always sort of be like the safe space I'm trying to get back to right if that makes sense and, sure and I feel as though I've been realizing lately how things about you'd think like oh the show came on the air and it really like I was forced to mature really quickly but there is something about like um fame and success that a little bit traps your identity in amber and now that the show is ending I'm sort of being forced to like examine all the things that I didn't address during that period of time. Sure. And my busyness and my sort of, and, you know, public speculation about my life, et cetera. There were lots of excuses for me not to just sort of look at myself. Mm-hmm. And um, being, starting to look at yourself again is both really interesting and really unfun all at the same time. It is unfun, but, you know, the long the long game on that is that, you know, you experience the most amounts of growth from the highest periods of discomfort. Yeah. So it is, it feels good. And I definitely feel like as a culture, we, uh, we lean on, like we seek comfort as much as possible, like really to an unhealthy degree. Well, sometimes don't you feel like self-help is sometimes like actually just people looking for a book to say like, you're doing great just as you are. Like 
Self-help, people don't actually want to do the work. What they want is confirmation <laughs> that sure. they've already done the work. And yeah, in some cases, I agree with that. I and I do because when I when I got sober, I I absorbed every self-help, everything. Because I'm like, well, I need to figure out, like, I need to get better. Who I am and what I'm doing. And what you find is that a lot of it's repetitive. Yeah. Which makes you think, well, either some of these people were lazy or there are some things that are just universally true about this stuff. And they're borrowing from each other or, yeah. or whatever. But... You know, it it there is, I mean, it's it sucks. It it suck it it sucks to end. I'm sure it's scary to end something. You know, yeah. that's been so much a part of your. I mean, 23 to 30 is such a formative time, and I think people don't really realize that. But it really, it is a you're you're, you're that's a whole separate identity that's forming, and then you had to do it publicly. It's a wild thing, and and I think I don't. I think something that was weird was like. I was, I mean, I keep mentioning this, but this podcast is called Nerdist, which is like, I wasn't a very popular kid and I didn't, it wasn't other kids' fault. I just like, it's not like I was victimized in my suburban school. Like I went to a cool (laughs) school in New York. I could have had friends, but I just, for whatever reason, didn't have the skill set or the interest. I had a lot of fear around it. So kind of just as I started to be a social person, I also became very visible. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm still figuring out how to have reciprocal adult relationships, particularly with other women. But it's funny because I've spent like all this time making a show about it. So I should be some kind of expert. And it turns out I'm the opposite of an expert. (laughs) Does it get under your skin when you feel, if you ever feel misunderstood, particularly in a culture where if someone hears a snippet of something or if they see something and they go, oh, well, you know, fuck that person. You're like, but you didn't even really investigate the... That's the hardest thing to me. I mean, I'm sure you feel it too, but to me, the worst feeling in the world is when it feels like you're being willfully misunderstood because I don't mind making a mistake and I don't mind being corrected, but I do mind being chastised by like a world that doesn't want to hear the totality of your thought. And specifically, if you're like a loud woman, they're always looking for an excuse to just kind of like, I feel like I... All of my friends who are female public figures experience this, which is like everyone is looking for an excuse, even other women sometimes because of the internalized misogyny that we all have to just like slap you the fuck down. And I think what's painful is when you – when it's like when you're like a little kid and your parents send you to your room and you're like, but I didn't get to explain. (laughs) And it's like I feel that way about the internet a lot. I'm like, I don't – I didn't do what you thought I did. Like I remember once in high school my friend Josephine, she she won't mind. She's an adult. She's married now. She was on the phone with her boyfriend in the middle of the night and her parents came in and were like, what are you doing? It's 4 a.m. You can't be on the phone. And she was like, I'm on with Lena. And I had my own phone line. And so our parents were friends. So they called and they were like, Lena and Josephine have been on the phone every night at 4 a.m. And my parents took away my phone line. And I was like, it wasn't me. (laughs) And I literally am like, feel that way all the time. And like, it took me like four days to be like, she was talking to her boyfriend. She lied. And so now I like get this like hot kid-like rage that I associate with either not getting what you want in a toy store or Josephine getting my phone line taken away. It wasn't me. I love that. It wasn't me. Do you watch Twilight Zone at all? 
I've watched Twilight Zone. My favorite is obviously the Pig Nose episode because I feel oh. that way all the time. You mean the Eye of the Beholder? Yes. You mean where she's getting the like the one where like the one beautiful the one yes. girl who doesn't have a pig nose. Everyone's like yes. this ugly wench. Yeah, 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 yeah. The whole time, it, it's so beautifully shot too. So gorgeous. So, so and I felt I've thought about it a lot during the last three months when I look around at America. And I'm like, is everyone losing their mind? <laughs> I think about the Eye of the Beholder episode and like how the. That poor, beautiful girl and all the pig-nosed people. Well, that, you know, but that, one of the reasons why I love that show so much is because he explores so many themes, so many social, sociopolitical themes, yeah. so many existential themes. And, um, and, and a lot of them are really still applicable today. But what I love about the show is that whatever your kind of, whatever episode stands out to you the most is a roadmap to, like, what your kind of deepest issues are. I just laid mine right out. Exactly. Because, you. you know, like, for me, there's one where a guy... He wakes up in a jail cell every, every every like he wakes up and he's in a jail cell, and it's he's on trial, and it, he basically is just living the same day over and over and over again. No one will listen to him, oh and it's like God. right near the end, they start to realize like oh they're you know and he's like D- D- I tell I go through it's oh it's uh, Dennis Weaver Dennis Weaver plays the guy and he's like I go through this every day and you don't listen and sometimes you play this character and you play this character but you're all here this is a this isn't real and mm-hmm. no one listens to him and that is always my big like yeah you know what if you just people they just attack and they don't give a shit and they won't listen and they don't they've just they've just condemned you and there's nothing you can do and you didn't do it but it doesn't matter they don't care you know I know that's a really Jack hates this story and he says I should never say it again but I'm gonna say it anyway which is that when I was in he just doesn't like it because it involves um, the word fart which is his least favorite (laughs) word and I don't love it either but we were on a field trip at my school to the Holocaust Museum in 8th grade which I obviously took very seriously as a you know anyone would but as someone with you know Eastern European Jewish ancestors and we were standing like waiting for a teacher before we left and someone farted and it wasn't me and I was blamed. And I remember like someone was like, I can't believe some you would fart in the Holocaust music. And I like was like, I am a scapegoat. But I also remember thinking for the first time before that I'd always thought, it doesn't matter what people think about you as long as you know you didn't do it. Sure. And in that moment I was like, no, actually, it doesn't matter that I didn't do it because everybody thinks I did it. Right. And so I've always referred to that as the farting in the Holocaust Museum syndrome. And Jack hates it because he's like, I don't ever want to hear you say that word. Right, right, right. But he understands the essence of it, which is like – and I think part of growing up is realizing like it's actually – like knowing your own heart and knowing your own truth is actually the most important thing. And like people are going to create this hologram of you and you can either – live in debt to that or you can kind of go like no I know who I am and I sure. know what I am and I think probably everyone vacillates between those two realities well yeah and it's all unless you're like Mel Gibson he's like oh, I know who I am <laughs> I'm fine <laughs> someone made a joke on that midnight the other night that made me laugh so hard where it hit somebody with Mel Gibson and, and her, her answer was so I guess we're just fine with him now it's like it was, so weird. It's so funny. I can't stop it's being so weirded out by it. Like, I keep seeing him places and I'm like, are we really just going to? And especially when you've like, like when every single day I get tweets at me about like, you know, like a dumb random thing I said in an article. And I'm like, guys, Mel Gibson's at the Golden Globes. Look over there. But, I know. If you're He's okay just with it. casually sitting with Vince Vaughn and Andrew Garfield having a great time. <laughs> But 
<laughs> but I you think know. it's all a lot of it's self-esteem issues, you know. Like if you, and 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 certainly certainly things that uh, that I feel like I still try to deal with is because you're always a. I think you're always in your head. You're always like a 13-year-old version of yourself. 100%. And, uh, you know, it's the same thing. Not popular kid. Very few friends. No internet at the time to really kind of bond with other people. So. You would have been so good at the internet as a kid, too. I kind of wonder if I would have become a troll. That's interesting. Because as a rebellion to... Just as a rabble rouser, basically. You know? Like, just as a rabble rouser to go fuck with people anonymously online... In a in a comedy way, like not in a not in a serious like hate yeah. speech way, but in sort of like a yeah. you know pretending to like the skunk thing, like pretending yeah. to be if dumb you, about things just to get people to go. Why are you so you know? Also, no one is meaner online than teenagers. Like whenever I get a tweet, I mean, I don't really I don't look at my own Twitter anymore. But whenever I would get a tweet that was like truly vicious, I would look and it would be like an adorable seventeen year old. And I realized like. Teenagers are so well versed in the language of cruelty, both from what they watch and from oh, sure. how they interact with each other, that like no one can knock you off your base like a pissed off smart seventeen year old. No, because a lot of because a lot a lot of them, not all, but certainly a lot of them have have yet to really experience like what emotional repercussions are. Yeah. So they don't like they they. I think you. I think you really do mature into empathy. Totally. Some people just have it, but I think some people have to mature into empathy. Plus, celebrities are fake people to them, and why wouldn't they be? Exactly. So it's like they're maturing into empathy, and they're talking to what they believe to be just like action, very highly evolved action figures. Yeah. So it's – so, I mean, I know like – I spent a lot of time in chat rooms enraged about things as a teenager. (laughs) Well, I just – I remember being so kind of – Socially ostracized to the extent that I, I, I think if I'd had an outlet like an internet, I probably would have, you know, just fucked with people. Yeah. But but instead, I you know I tried to socialize and I became I you know I I tried to understand and I would move and get a new group of people and it was trial and error. Yeah. And then uh, ultimately, thankfully, I went in the direction of oh. Rather than attacking other people to feel superior, uh, I want to try to nurture people to feel more comfortable with themselves. Which you're doing so good at. I'm trying. My friend Emily Silverstein, shout out to Emily. We used to go on chat rooms and pretend we were like Adelia's model, like a model for the <laughs> oh Adelia's God. catalog, yeah. and be like, tell guys, like, my name's Diana. I'm 5'10. I have brown. And a big thing for us was getting guys to tell us what brand their jeans were. <laughs> Like, look at your tag. What brand of jeans are you wearing? Like, I don't even know what we thought we were doing, but we would, like, get a guy. We'd be, he'd be like, I can't see him. We'd be like, take off your pants and look at the tag. And we'd be like, we've just won big time. You totally got him. And I remember once we, like, a guy asked if we wanted to cyber, and we thought it was so funny. We were like, you're smelling my hair. You're touching my cheek. Like, we, like, kept it really PG. And it was, like, kind of a highly evolved bit that we were doing. Emily was like my my true like seventh grade soulmate. She wanted to be a comedian and she was the funniest. I think she might be a lawyer now, but she was like she had like the sense of humor of like like a fifty seven year old, really smart fifty seven oh, year old great. woman. Like it was like having like Fran Lebowitz as your best friend, <laughs> only seventh grade style, and we got up into some trouble in chat rooms. That's great. Yeah, I I think for me, I ultimately arrived at a place where I feel bad fucking with people. Like I'm, a, yeah. I hate pranks. You know, I hate pranks. I hate, I hate, I hate, even though, you know, like, 
I love what Billy Eichner does, but I get stressed about it because I could never run up to people on the street. When I did it with him, I was like having a panic attack. Yeah. I don't like... I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Please, I don't yeah. mean to fuck with you. No, I don't like fucking with anyone. And even like I'm bad at teasing. Like yesterday really I sent my friend like a teasing video on like WhatsApp. And then like 20 minutes later, I was like, was that too mean? And he was like, no, I just didn't watch it yet, you psycho. <laughs> like uh. I made fun of him and then I couldn't handle having made fun of him. Jack is great because he does really like loving pranks. Like, he does pranks, but they don't hurt anybody. Like he'll like... He, like, filled his bandmates – he, like, went in and, like, filled his bandmates' fitted sheet with lemons. <laughs> That's a, that doesn't hurt anybody. No. Or, like, he's got some other pranks he's working on now that are, like, ornate, but, like, will never injure anyone. They'll only just, like, make them laugh when they figure it out. Yeah. Whereas I feel like so many pranks are designed to humiliate, and I don't do well with that. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't enjoy that either. Because then I just feel bad. Because I just always put myself in the position of the person being pranked. And I'm like, yeah. oh, this doesn't feel good at all. I feel why. Well, yes, I you caught me off guard. Yeah, good for you. I've been humiliated. My good, dad good job. like had a friend from high school who joined a cult and changed his name to Vessel. And I remember my dad came home from hernia surgery, and he was like in bed, really out of it. And I thought it'd be really funny to go in and be like. Um, someone named Vessels on the phone for you. And my dad looked like he was going to, like, die. And I realized, I was like, oh, that wasn't fun at all. And then I was like, prank. And my dad was like, you suck. Like, he's just like, that wasn't funny. It scared me. And I'm on pain medication. Like, why did you do that? And I was like, great point. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm always going to side with the – I'm always going to side with, oh, you damn kids. I'm always going to side yeah, with that person. Like, me, get off his lawn. Come on. Too. He's just an old guy. Give, yeah. him, give him a break. Give him a break. You, you used the Delia's catalog and you reminded me that when I was 30, uh, well, I was still in the height of like living in this booze cocoon. Uh, I was living in Westwood uh, and where I was far too old to live because that's where UCL – that's where I went to college. I moved back yeah. there. Yeah. And still, uh, still probably you felt very cool. I felt I'm so cool. And uh, well, actually, I knew at the time, like, I'm too old to be living here, but I don't know where else to go. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I didn't know where else to go. My parents so, live in Williamsburg. They feel you. They, they totally understand. So I was there. And I remember in the when I first moved into this apartment, the Delia's catalog came and I got it with the rest of my mail. And I saw it and I was like, I don't. I don't know if I'm allowed to even have this. <laughs> it could and be then, illegal. And then it showed up again. And I, I remember almost legit getting in a fight with the post guy. I'm like, I, this guy was clearly like the previous tenant. You're like, this is bit. not mine. I go, you can't be delivering this to me. This looks really, I was living looks alone. really I'm bad. I'm 30. It's bad enough that I'm the oldest person in this building. You can't I, be giving me a teen girl catalog. I know. And it was like the coolest one. Like, if you got, Del- if you got Delia's, you were it. And I remember my mom... She was wise. Like, the stuff was crap. So she would only let me get things that were, like, on deep sale. Like, they would send, like, their, like, Delia's clearance catalog. And once a year, it was when you still had to order on the phone, I would circle all of the things I wanted and then um, do the order, which I was so proud of. And then my mom would get on to give her credit card number. Yeah. And it was, like, to me, the greatest day of the year. <laughs> and I was obsessed. Delia's also sold, like, inflatable furniture and, like, scented candles. And my mom, like, would give, like, a, like a $10 allowance for, like, crap things. Right. She'd be, like, things that are going to break within a week, things that – but, like <laughs> – but what was – like, Delia's had a lot of, like – um like, like I remember I had, like, a glow-in-the-dark Betty Boop shirt that I wore to, like, all my camp socials. It sounds like you're disc- – it sounds like they're, like – like, what if you ripped off the facade of Urban Outfitters and it was just a Delia's underneath? Because it sounds like, like... It was. That's what it was. But And they also... Sometimes your Delia's would come with, like, a mixtape. Like, a mixtape of, like, hip female artists oh. at the time. Like, it would be, like, like people who we haven't... 
ever heard from again. <laughs> but like I remember being like, yeah, just wearing Medelia's, listen to Medelia's CD because it was like the – and I remember really ornately telling my therapist because I was switching schools for seventh grade, the thing, showing her – the things that I thought I might get in Delia's to wear for the first day of school and like even feeling that she felt a little sad for me. <laughs> and I remember I settled on a shirt that was by a brand called Bug Girl and mm-hmm. the like logo was like a girl like a girl who was a bug. And oh, I was like Oh, because she that's why they called her Bug Girl. That's why they called her Bug Girl. And I wore like that with a I had a denim jacket and I was really into like going to like whatever like Spencer's gifts and getting like sassy pins yeah so I had one that said who lit the fuse on your tampon <laughs> and I had one that said you go girl and just keep on going until you're gone and I was like I am funny I am stylish <laughs> who lit the fuse on your tampons are real roughy and this was like I wouldn't get my period for like another three years because this was just me being like yeah I'm a <laughs> My favorite comedian at the time was Lisa Lampanelli. Got it. And I was working a very specific angle. That was a very, it was a kind of a, was your comedy at that time kind of like quick and jabby? I would do, it was quick and jabby and like really, like I would try to make like, again, like I'm too worried about other people's feelings to make the kinds of jokes that I was making. Sure. So it would be like my mom would come out and I'd be like, nice boots, mom. Who, what hooker gave you those? Like, it was just like so rude. <laughs> it's like morning show comedy. Yeah. And my mom would be like, you're not, I remember my mom literally being like, you're not funny. Right. I was just trying things. And then when I was 14, I went to stand up comedy school at the Stand Up Institute of America, which is a room in Times Square where I went to comedy school with all adults in a 10 week program. My parents bought me for Christmas and I remember, like, then I was I realized that I wasn't as interested. And he was like, some people are into audience, like, comedy, engaging the audience, doing – and I was like, I realized I wasn't, like, a sassy, mean girl. I realized my comedy had to be self-directed cruelty. <laughs> I'm always going to be my own heckler and I'm always going to attack that heckler. Yes, exactly. But I think it's, you know, uh, for, I, I'm curious what your experience is like being um, – it, it, trying to balance the the parts of your personality that are, you know, the strong comedy, uh, the strong comedy voice, yeah. and then also social activism. Because sometimes I think, sometimes people, I think, can only categorize someone as one thing. Yeah. And so, you know, if they see you as social activist, but you're in comedy mode, and they go, I can't believe you just said that. Oh, why? Well, you know, yeah. people are a lot of different things, you know? Yeah. So they're not just one, they're not just one thing. Totally. And I'm also not good, like, I'm not good at making, like, hilarious topical jokes. Like, I'm not, like, the person who's going to come at you with, like, a great, like, like, you know, Flynn stepping down zinger. Like, right. I'm pretty earnest when it comes to politics, and I'm also pretty earnest, like, at the end of the day, I'm pretty earnest. And so... It's it can be confusing because like when I post something about Planned Parenthood, I'm not like full of like I'm not full of like incredible sass about it. I'm like, this is what I believe is best for the world. And this is I'm going to share with you my like most intimate experiences. And then I'm most comfortable with comedy as like a tool for exploring my own neuroses rather Mm -hmm. than and which and I don't have a lot. I don't have I wish that I was like able to like formulate, you know, like a hilarious and incisive Ivanka Trump tweet. But all I can really say is like, this situation makes me sad. Like, that's all I've got. (laughs) And so I'm always trying to balance it. And I'm always trying to make sure that my like Twitter doesn't become like a punishing parade of requests for funds or an account of what I'm eating and stepping back from social media and not um, 
like I don't tweet. I used to tweet all the time and say lots of sassy things, and now I mostly just share if I've written something or if I if I'm doing an event because I realized like the the medium was starting to feel like inauthentic and punishing. To well, me. it's hard. So you know, it's it's difficult. It, it, social media is not. It's not really a place for conversation. It's really a place for shout, for shouting, kind of. Yeah. And so, just I mean, just because the nature of it's short bursts of words. Yeah. And the ones that are going to rise to the top are the most, uh, you know, emotional in some way. Yeah. And so it's usually a, you know, it's a people use it's like this gap between a synapse firing in someone's brain and social media is shortening to the extent that it's so much emotional outbursting. And not enough like, hey, let's all talk and figure out, you know, can we understand each other or can we – I don't yeah. agree with you, but is there a way that we can either at least come away civilly or yeah. or at least be able to somewhat understand where the other person is coming from? Yeah. Because just shouting at each other all the time isn't really going to fix isn't anything and us. it's just going to make everyone defensive. Yeah. So My boyfriend does this – Jack does this thing which I really like, which is like he'll ask a question on his social media. He'll be like – Genuine question, not judging anyone. For those who follow me who voted for Trump, how are you feeling about X right now? Mm -hmm. And he says it is really educational for him because, like, he was surprised to learn that he had fans who had voted for Trump for various reasons and now felt scared or concerned or were able to give him insight into why. And, like, bringing a non-judgmental question to Twitter was, like, almost – like, people were almost like, are you serious? You're asking <laughs> You're us. fucking with us. Are you are fucking you, with you us? You must be doing a prank. And But he said it felt really – good to have those interactions and and there's a sort of generosity of spirit there that i would like to be able to tap into like i tend to be in our he's very like he's always he's been an activist for as long as he's been a public person and always really focus his energy mostly on lgbtq issues and sort of being an ally to those communities and he's taught me a lot about how to like um be an activist from a place of positivity and not a place of anger because sure. it's so easy to go in just like being like this world is fucked yeah and it is <laughs> and fuck you and fuck you and it is but like we can't ever hope to have anyone join our team if we're not like coming from a place of love and understanding like i, like, I agree a huge goal of mine for this year is to really understand like okay so 53% of white people, white women voted for Donald Trump. Why and what are they scared of and what have they internalized that's made them think that this is the president they deserve and how can we have a cogent conversation with each other and can we? Well, I, I, I really believe that, you know, not everyone who thinks the opposite of me is the monster is a monster and not everyone who agrees with things that I believe is always an awesome person, you know? And a so lot of the most vitriolic attention I've gotten is from people who I ostensibly share politics with but who don't like the way I'm going about it or what my voice or my vibe or and something I realized this year that was really important to me was to get you know I grew up in New York and there's a lot of like sort of like that's you know the home of like you know sassy literary gatherings and Gawker and Jezebel and I realized I was like I really really want to remove myself from what I feel are like toxic communities that I think I th always thought as a young person it was my job to impress and now I'm like oh it's totally okay to just have like disparate sets of friends raise poodles and <laughs> and dream your dreams and not 
be constantly trying to convert the snarks of the world. So uh, as we're kind of winding this down, this is the, the, the when does the final season premiere? So we premiered this past week. This past we, week. We premiered on February 12th. Um, I was not even watching. I was just lying in bed reading a book knowing it was happening. And uh, I've long since given up, like, waiting for reactions on Twitter or anything. Sure. That's 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 a toxic uh proposition if ever there was one but yeah we're going to be we're going to be airing for the next nine weeks and then we have a big finale show that we put together after our finale that's sort of like a look back on um all the seasons which makes me cry but i am me so well and you i mean i honestly feel like you you you're not made of wood i mean this was a a significant chunk of your life and you threw a significant not, not just of yourself into it, but also like it, it, it time and energy and, and and like and you're you're fostering this this you know like a a, a work thing is a life. It's like a life. You're bringing this thing to life. There's a lot of mourning that I wasn't expecting, especially because we chose to end the show. It's not like we got canceled. We are so lucky. We made the choice. Like this is the time. These characters have have done what they needed to do, and we've done what we needed to do with them. But like. That was my family and my friends, and I haven't there, – there hasn't been a birthday for the last six years that I haven't celebrated with my – you know, from 24 to 30, all my birthdays were surrounded by this super loving group of people who all had this common goal of making this work. And, and you know, now I'm working on a book, and I sort of sit at my desk and go, like, who am I and why am I so alone? <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm really proud of the final season and so – especially proud of the other girls on the show and of Jenny and Judd who made it with me. And, like, I just feel like like all I want is just for them to feel like they're the amazing thing that they've done is getting the attention it deserves. I think they do, and I think they see that the impact the show had. And, and I've, you know, I... I know Judd not really well, but I, I but I know him, and he's always been he's really really into you. I love that guy, and Allison Williams is fucking awesome, isn't she? The I, best? I don't know her well. We're kind of acquaintance. We 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 email every once in a while and say, "Hey, how's it going?" She's the best. She's awesome. Well, it's so funny because people just see Allison and like she has that look where it's like you could literally throw a bucket of dirt on her and she would still look like she was like on the cover of a Banana Republic catalog. Like she's so <laughs> clean and beautiful and tidy. You don't realize she's like. The funniest, smartest, most like constantly educating herself, constantly pushing herself, asking herself the big questions, an amazing friend. I mean, Allison is a a golden treasure. And really great. I just I saw Jordan Peele's movie and she's great in it. She was so picky. Like Allison wants to do things that like create conversation and social change and she's not fucking around about she was, that. She she she's really she's really great. I'm so excited. She told me, I mean, she's this is so Allison. She like wouldn't tell me what happened in the end. She's like that upset. She's like I'm not going to give you spoilers. And I was like, okay. <laughs> but she's true. Like, Allison is someone where if you ask her to keep a secret, it's not it's she's not going to half keep it. She's oh, going to keep it. Good. Well, I'm uh, I'm so glad we were finally able to get you on. I know it's something it's, that we've, but my, my schedule sucks. And and also when we've you don't, tried to the, do it, and probably I also feel like I like always have a cold. <laughs> I feel like I'm always like I wish I could. I had it like literally one time someone said to me like I came to a like a women in TV event and they were like this is the third time you've showed up late uh, talking about having a stomachache and I was like I always have a stomachache. I don't know what to say. Like. All my, I'm like never out drinking. I'm never out being like a wild child. I just am like just out having a poor immune system. Yeah. Oh, that's. I'm so sorry that that you. But do you feel like? Do you feel like you you're you're managing it, or do you feel like ah, feel, this is just how it is? I feel half the time like my body's eating me alive, but I feel like I have such a lucky life. It doesn't matter. Right. If does that make sense? Yeah. 
Like, I feel like I spend a lot of time ha- very happy in bed. Sick. Well, that's, listen, as long as you. <laughs> like, that's just the truth of it. But I love it. And, and I love, to, and if, it's good if you like to read. Yeah. Hey, I want to ask you one quick question. Yeah. When you, uh, just because of the nature of what your podcast is and what you talk about, and is it, I, don't, I hope this doesn't come off wrong. Nothing. But if a, but if a, if a guy if a guy came up to you and he's like, "Hey, I listen to your podcast. I totally get it." Do you see where I'm going with this? Like, do you sort of feel like, "Well, you can't fully get it if you're if you're a dude." Like, like I feel like what? I'd be pretty touched if a guy was like, "I love your podcast." I mean, I mean, it would be one thing if he was like, "Listen to that." Like, it's interesting because there's a fine line. I love when men try to educate themselves about feminism. Like, what sure. a cool turn on. I don't like when men try to be like, here's how feminism should move forward. And sure. there's an increasing thing of like guys who are like, I identify as a feminist and here are five steps I think the movement needs to take. <laughs> and it's like we all need to learn how to like sit back and allow like, you know, whatever group is taking the mic at that moment to express their – just like I need to sit back and like listen to my, you know, trans sisters or sisters of color. Like I, like, I don't love being told like – I don't love – like, I remember a guy once said to me, like, sometimes I just feel like there's no place for me in the feminist movement. And I was like, that's probably because there kind of isn't right now. And, like, dudes have had the chance to, like, dominate the dialogue for a long time. So there's certain areas – but, like, when a guy says he listens to the podcast and feels like he learns from it, or even when he says, I watched the show and it makes me feel like I understand my girlfriend or my sister better, like, that to me is so touching. That's different than the supposition of – yeah. Hey, I totally get it, and here's what we're gonna do. Like, yeah. well, I don't even. Remember. Like, I loved seeing guys at the women's march, but I was like, there's a fine line between like being at the women's march to support and being at the women's march because you like believe that you have the answers that are gonna take us. Like, like I think it's really becoming clear that like women have never benefited from men, even well-meaning men, attempting to make decisions about their bodies and their futures. Right. But that doesn't mean that we don't need – everyone needs allies. Like we all need to be each other's allies in all of the big fights that are coming up. Yeah. Well, I'm your ally, Chris. I am your ally as well and I, I – it was, this was so nice that you came. It was so – such an honor and I realized I was like – I wore my pajamas but that's because we're on a podcast. Yeah, honestly, like seriously, be – you know – I'm, be you. I'm, you look cool. You look like you've got cool like patches and stuff. I'm literally wearing my dead grandma's fleece. <laughs> My dad was too tall. I can't wear any of his clothes. That's so... Oh, my God. How tall was your dad? My dad was 6'1". I'm like 5'10"-ish. My mom was like... My mom will tell you she's five feet tall. She's like 4'11". That's so cute. Uh, And so my parents... And and so I just... I just kind of got, you know... Yeah. My entire family is five... My sister is six feet tall. My mom is 5'10". My dad told me he was 5'10". I think he's more like 5'9", now that I, like, have an actual... Five ten, five people do boyfriend. shrink as they get older, though. That's true, and then so. I'm like bringing up the tr- like Jack always calls me the postman's baby because I'm like five three and thirty pounds heavier <laughs> than everybody else, and just like bringing up the rear. Well, I just just to, just to let you know, like I, I'm wearing, I'm very much supporting this. These pants have your jeans have a drawstring. The jeans have a drawstring, so just before you think that I am, I'm just letting you know like how much comfort I am seeking. My fucking jeans have, have a, a drawstring. String. That is amazing. And they're super soft. Like, they're almost kind of pajama material. I just had to throw away a pair of jeans that had, like, a stretchy waistband. Because I was like, I can't give up this soon in life. Like, <laughs> they were jeans with, like, an elastic waistband sure, yeah. that I got in Japan. 
Here's an amazing detail. In Japan, I can only shop at plus size stores. What? Well, in Japan, like, they don't make jeans over, like, a size, like, 24 waistline. So there's an amazing store for, like, curvy women in Japan called Punyus, which means chubby in Japanese. (laughs) And I got... An ama- and this really cool girl named Naomi Watanabe. <laughs> it's the word poon in it. I know. And she started poon use. And it's like, all of it fits me perfectly. And in Japan, it's literally considered to be like a line for obesity. <laughs> oh and that's where my stretch, stretchy waist jeans came from. And I was like, as much as I love poon use, like, I can't be wearing a jean with a <laughs> with an elastic waistband. But I do continue to wear my poon use turtlenecks and my poon use hair clips. That is so interesting. I didn't okay. get it. I went into an area and I was like, these clothes are awesome and they fit me. Why is nobody else in this section? And then I like looked around and I was like, because I'm in a Japanese shopping mall and everybody weighs 11 and a half pounds and I'm alone <laughs> in Punyus. It's well, so... I don't think there's anything wrong with... Uh... And maybe this is just me getting older. I don't think there's anything wrong with comfort. There is nothing wrong let's, with comfort. Let's send that out into the masses because I feel like a lot of people are really punishing themselves right now. Yeah, and and that might be a little contradictory to what I said earlier about how we're addicted to. Com- I think we're addi- there's nothing wrong with comfort, but we're but you don't want to seek being comfortable at the cost of growth. How about that? That's so beautifully said. There's nothing wrong with. Um, taking care of yourself every single day in special small ways but you have to be striving towards a better tomorrow yes and sometimes that means being uncomfortable and sometimes you know you might maybe you've already gone through it you might go through a period of a while where you have to mourn that not just the show being done but also like you're you know like the 20s and moving on but the good news is and i can tell you from having passed the 40 mark is that when you get past it you're like oh Okay, I, actually, I feel I don't feel like a dumb shit. I feel a lot better. I I, I was yeah. so worried about this other stuff before, and I got past it, and it's okay. Every woman is like each. De- every woman I know seems to think that like each decade of their life was rather than the last. Like everyone loves being every evolved woman I know loves being the age that she is. Well, no one's like when you get older, you get more wisdom and awareness. You're not aware when you're like 19 because you just it's just all about like I can't believe what an idiot I was when I was 19. What can I put in my body? You know, like what substances or what you know, like for what, me it was a lot of pizza. <laughs> and you don't really think about anything or consequences when you start to get older. You just feel like you have a little more control over the game, like a little more totally. Like, okay, if I do this, this will happen, and I, I avoid these things, and I will not feel that pain. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, good. I'm gonna take. I found this conversation very therapeutic. And I'm going to take it with us. Please, please do. Please take it with you and uh, and take it with you if you're listening right now and enjoy we your love burrito. You. Thank you for having me. Thanks Just for enjoy your burrito. That's how we end the podcast. <laughs> I, yeah, I forgot that. It's yeah. so great. Yeah. I'm going to enjoy the green tea Kit Kat. Enjoy your baby. green tea Kit Kat. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. 
and you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.